The world wants to tell you resurrection is a fantasy. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would strengthen us and thrill us with the whole idea of resurrection, the truth of resurrection. Bless us to know it from your word, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Army veteran had had a hard run since the war ended. He tried his hand at farming, but things went poorly and ended up selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis, wearing his old faded army jacket. A depression hit, devastating farmers, and the no longer young man, now 35 years old, was forced to sell his gold watch to pay for Christmas for his family. He seemed to be going nowhere fast when destiny intervened and a great resurrection event occurred. And that event was the Civil War. Within three months, Ulysses S. Grant was promoted to general and was leading an army on the field of battle. Having been resurrected in his destined element, Grant would rise from obscurity and go on to command the whole Union Army and eventually become President of the United States. This morning, we'll see that glorious resurrection is a reality as we discover in the Gospel of Luke that resurrection raises the righteous. Resurrection raises the righteous. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Luke 20, verse 27. And it says there, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, you probably know who the Pharisees are. Everybody knows who the Pharisees are, because sometimes if you're being legalistic, someone will go, you're such a Pharisee. But do you ever hear anybody say, You're being such a Sadducee. The two of the main parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we've got Essenes and we've got Zealots kind of mixed into some of these parties, but the two main parties in religious observance in Israel in the first century were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, who are the Sadducees? Their name was derived from the name Zadok. You may remember Zadok was a priest in the days of David and Solomon. And so they were called the Zadokies or the Sadducees. They were the priestly class, particularly going forward from the days of the Maccabean Rebellion, which is about 160 to 200 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They became the power brokers in Israel. They were the priestly class, and so they were very influential. They were very cosmopolitan. They were very Hellenized because they worked with the Gentile authorities who were overseeing Israel at whatever moment it might have been. They were wealthy and influential, acting as go-betweens with Israel and the Romans, and they ran the religious system in Israel. They profited handsomely off of the temple system, but they denied the resurrection. Now, we think that there's some sort of prototypical liberals. They're not. They denied the resurrection, but they didn't deny the idea of Sheol. Now, in the first century Jewish mindset, when somebody dies, they go to the abode of the dead. They go in spirit form to the abode of the dead, and in some more advanced versions of this, you've got Abraham's bosom, you've got the paradise, or the place of the righteous dead, and then you've got Hades, the place of the unrighteous dead, but they're they're almost like ghost-like forms. And in some forms of this theology, it almost parallels the idea of shades in the ideas of the Greeks. But they denied the resurrection of the body. They denied the existence of angels. They denied fate and exalted free will 
the Sadducees. Going on to verse 28. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this seems like an odd concept to us today. What's the context of what's going on here? Well, Jesus had just given a stinging rebuke to these very same Sadducees. Some priests came who were likely of the Sadducees' party. They tried to entrap Jesus. They said, is it, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar, this Gentile pagan authority trying to rule over Israel, you who claim to be Messiah. And Jesus had them give him a coin and said, whose face is on this coin? And then in verse 25 of the same chapter we're looking at this morning, he said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. I think they stewed. They were angry. But if you look at the context here, it looks like they've had this situation prepared for for a long time. They've got questions they want to ask Jesus. They carefully crafted an argument. In fact, if you look at this argument that they're creating here, it's not what they really want to know about. They want to try and entrap Jesus into what they really want to entrap him on, which is his idea of the resurrection and it being true and real. They also had been stingingly rebuked by Jesus in front of the people, and now they looked foolish, and so they wanted to get the high ground back once again and show their learning, and so they come up with this argument, which is really a silly argument because it's not the question they really want to ask. It's sort of like when you have somebody who's an atheist, and they say to you, can God do anything? And you say, well, yes, he's all-powerful. Can he make a stone that's so big that he can't lift it? It's a silly question that doesn't even deserve an answer. And so what we have here is what was known as leverate or kinsman redeemer marriage. Kids, lift it, listen up. This is gonna sound strange to your ears, kids, but in times past, it wasn't that unusual. There was variations of it in almost every different social context in other countries of the world. But in Deuteronomy 25, and verse five and six, it says, if brothers dwell together. So you've got brothers dwelling together they're on some sort of communal plot of land. They probably have adjacent farms. And one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name might not be blotted out of Israel. Now remember, Israel's tribal. It's divided up into various inheritance portions. You can even see it laid out right there in the Bible. Imagine that. Your ranch is laid out in the Bible by family and by boundary. And so we see names were intertwined with inheritances that could be permanently lost if you've got a person in your family who has the name and the father dies. And so you were to take your brother's wife produce an offspring with your brother's wife. And that firstborn son would then take the name and then would inherit all this property. Now, I know this sounds weird, but I bet you if you went back in your family histories, you might find something similar to this, not exactly like this. In both my wife and I's family in Japan, if you didn't have any sons, it wasn't unusual that your brother would give you one of his extra sons. He would then take the name and become part of that family and carry that name on forever. So this is leverate or kinsman redeemer marriage, and this prevented the loss of names and inheritances. Verse 29, 
Now here's their question. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had had her as wife. Now the real question that they have is the resurrection. Jesus, how do you justify the resurrection? They could have just asked that question and be done with it. They could have gotten the answer from Jesus that way, but they wanted to show their learning and how intelligent they were. They also wanted to seek a, a way to go around the edge to see if they could entrap Jesus in his words. But here in the question, the woman had no children because they assumed that if she did have a child and then that husband died, that that would be her husband in the resurrection. And if that was the case... And Jesus had answered whatever his answer would have been. They would have just simply launched into another series of questions. And you know people like this. You give them an answer from Scripture and they say, but, 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 and it goes on forever and ever. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, in this very brief statement of Jesus's, we've got a very dense theology of the resurrection, of the bodily resurrection. And so we might want to ask ourselves, what does Jesus say about the resurrection? And let's look at what he says here. First of all, he says, there's no more marriage. Now, for us, I think this kind of hits us as being rather strange because in our time, marriage is about a relationship, a friendship, a close kinship, a relationship of intimacy between two persons now. Before that, it was husband and wife are in this relationship of intimacy and friendship together. And so anybody could do that eventually, and that's why we've got Oberfell. Because marriage has been reduced down to a relationship between two people, and why not two people of the same sex? But marriage has always been about reproduction. Marriage has always been about having children. And we're so foolish in this modern age that we don't see that. Marriage is strength in producing children and launching children out into the world. But in the modern age, we've completely forgotten something basic. If you don't have kids, you don't have people. And if you don't have people, you don't have a world as we know it. Now, this would not have been strange in the past when this was clearly understood. And maybe some of you have been to traditional marriages where the marriage rite talks about, first and more foremost, about marriage being about procreation, about having children. But we see that Jesus says this seems to have become superfluous in the age to come. There's going to be no overpopulation. And I think some conclusions that we can draw from this are that there's going to come a day when that last person who's going to be coming into the kingdom is born. The last saint will be born. The last Christian will be born. And they'll live their life, and at some point in their life, Jesus will come again. There's no overpopulation in the age to come. There's no marriage to produce more people. The number of people is not going to increase and let me get a little bit more speculative here, but I don't think I'm off base. We're told that as Jesus is, Jesus the man, Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, 
He's probably about 33 years old. I think we're going to be about 33. I think we're going to look awesome. I think we're going to be physically awesome. We're going to be spiritually awesome. We're going to be mentally awesome. It's kind of strange not to think about babies and old people and people bent over on their walkers. But in the age to come, we're not given in marriage nor taking in marriage because marriage passes away into something greater, and that is a marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the bride of Christ, the church. What else do we see here? We're like the angels. We're like the angels. Now, in reality here, don't draw too deeply on this because it almost seems like we're in the same class of angels. In this age, angels are more powerful than us. In this age, angels act like tutors to us. They protect us and they lead us and guide us through this age in ways that we can't put our fingers on and can't see. But in the age to come, I think we'll say, but of course it was you all along. But when it says this, it's not saying that we are of an equal class to them in all ways. Rather, in the age to come, they will marvel as we become the rulers of the cosmos. But the angels are like us and we like them in the age to come and that they are immortal, immortal, powerful, sinless. It's two classes of angels. One third fell and became the demons that can do nothing but sin. But the angels of heaven can do nothing but righteousness. And if you saw one right now and if that angel were to manifest himself before us, our desire would want to be to fall down to him. He would say, no, no. I'm but an angel, but they're awesome. They're awesome. And there's much about them that we will be like in the age to come. Now, as we stop here, that's about as much as we can go on with Jesus' words in this one section here. You might think, how did the Sadducees come up with this idea that there's no resurrection in the age to come? Well, they thought they were studying the Old Testament properly. They thought there was no evidence for a bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. Maybe you've thought that. Now, there's not a ton. It's not like the New Testament where many things suddenly burst forth and things that were very misty in the Old Testament suddenly become clear. But there is enough in the Old Testament about the bodily resurrection. And you kids, if you're out here, maybe you've got classmates or you know people that say, what a bunch of foolishness. You're going to rise from the dead on the last day. You might want to mark these down. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. I think that's pretty clear. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, looking forward to the new covenant age to come and that which lies beyond it, says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, friends, from one end of the Bible to the other, there is evidence, and when we get to the New Testament, very explicit sayings and prophecies about what is to come and the reality that Jesus already tastes what we shall taste on the last day. There is a bodily resurrection coming. And if you're in here this morning, and if you're like me, we went out hunting the last couple of days, and my knees hurt, and I probably got some more white hairs and every day we're getting closer to death in this age. But there's a resurrection coming, friends. There's a resurrection coming because Jesus has paid the price and resurrected from the dead. Can I hear an amen to that? Verse 37, Jesus continues. 
but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. Jesus, the author of Scripture, we must remember. I love how all these people during all these recent social arguments on race and on marriage and on gender will say things like, well, you're just quoting out of the New Testament, but you can't quote anything out of the Old Testament, so all those commands you see and all those proof texts out of the Old Testament aren't worth anything because Jesus didn't say them. But guess what? Jesus did say them. Kids or anybody out here who doesn't know this yet, Jesus as the second person of the triune God existed forever and ever. He's the author of Scripture. That's why he's called the Logos, the Word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus was moving upon the saints of old in their words and actions that were taken down and set in the canon here in the Old Testament. So Jesus, the author of Scripture, says the resurrection of the dead is proved in the small details. Notice that. It's proved in the very small details here. Do you see Jesus' argument here? It's about tenses. It's about grammar tenses. He says here that the Lord, the God, talks about Abraham and being the God, not was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, and was the God of Jacob, but is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And upon those small details, which Jesus, as the second person of the triune God, had destined, had said, and meant this very thing, calls us out at this point in time. You see, friends, when we die, we go into what's called the intermediate state. If you've ever wondered what happens to us when we die, if we die in this age, and there will be some who will be alive when Jesus comes again, and these things will happen like boom. But for most of us in this age, when we die, our bodies go into the grave. The righteous and the unrighteous are separated. Spirits and bodies, bodies go into the ground. Bodies wait for the righteous. And in the intermediate state, the unrighteous go into hell. The righteous as spirits go into heaven. And then at the final judgment, the unrighteous will stay in hell, and hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Hell itself, which was originally created for the devil and his demons. But if you want to follow after the devil, you can go there. And then hell will be cast into the lake of fire. And they will stay in that spirit state forever in torment. But what about us? Are we going to be floating around like ghosts forever or something? And by the way, when you're in heaven, I think it's just as real as it is here. But you're not complete yet. You haven't got your body back. The righteous who are in spirit will be resurrected, body and spirit in eternal glory. Think about that, friends. Some of you out here are closer to death than others. Some of you are so young, you never think about it, but the older you get, the more you'll realize that day is drawing close. Your body will remind you, and one day, some of you will be laid up waiting for death. And I want to say to you, the hope of the resurrection is coming. We're just getting started, brethren. This isn't all there is. When we get on the other side, we're going to see how this was the battle. This was the quest. This was the triumph of struggle for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the expansion of the kingdom of God and bringing together all things that God has destined. But the age to come is going to go on and on. And man, it's going to be cool. 
I got a feeling we're going to be checking out all of God's creation. You're going to be able to do things you never dreamed of. I don't think I could pluck two banjo strings. But imagine having 100,000 years to figure out stringed instruments without sin standing in the way. Imagine how awesome you'd be doing marathons on a moon somewhere. I know that sounds crazy, but think about Jesus. He's, he's, he's not just Iron Man. He's the Hulk and Superman and Wonder Woman all wrapped up into one, and that's just the beginning. He walks through walls, and at the end he flies up. And John tells us, as he is, we will be. The very man answering the Sadducees here will shortly be crucified, die and resurrect as a man, glorious in body and spirit, and as he is, so we shall be. Can I hear an amen to that? I have a recurring dream. I've talked to other people, and they, they seem to have the same dream. I start flapping my arms in a very straight and forceful way, and I begin to slowly fly off the ground. I cruise along a treetop level just above the roofs of houses. Sometimes I fly too high, and the air currents make me lose control, but I never crash, and the dream is thrilling. I wish it were fulfilled one day. The dream is really about resurrection and waking up someday as a new powerful person. Well, that day is coming for us. One day Jesus will come again and will lay aside this weak body and be resurrected as new, powerful, eternal, glorious human beings. So take heart. Resurrection's coming. This morning we've seen in the Gospel of Luke that resurrection raises the righteous. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to come and live and die and rise from the dead on our behalf. We pray that you would help us to think about heaven, but not just as an end in itself, but heaven's coming to earth, and we're coming with it, and we must be transformed to be those who are fit to live in it forever and ever. We thank you for these things. Strengthen us this week to live it and to spread it, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.